I'm going to pray, and then we'll get underway. How's that sound? Lord, you are holy. You are good. You're worthy. Lord, you're worthy of our full devotion, our full attention. God, you're worthy of all that we have and more. And Lord, as we seek your face, you draw near to us. God, thank you that you're not a God who hides himself in a way that we can't find you. You like to play hide and seek with us. <laughs> you always let us find you. You're never impossible to find. Lord, I pray that we would understand you a little bit more today and understand ourselves a little bit better and what you expect of us and want from us. In Jesus' name, amen. Almost 18 months ago, COVID changed everything. You guys know that? <laughs> Says the public school teacher. <laughs> Still has to be mandated to wear a mask at work. <laughs> if you don't know, something's wrong. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Almost 18 months ago. Guys, that's a long time. But it's also not a long time. But a long time for something like that, right? It does feel longer. It changed people. Changed our nation. Changed the church. Like really, it did. It changed the church. Some churches for worse, some for better. Because it changed some people for worse and some people for better. You can argue all day long whether it changed our nation for worse or better. <laughs> We're still dealing with, dealing with this today, right? As Stuart well knows, right? <laughs> but here's the big question that's been asked, and it was asked less than a year ago. Um, is the church essential? Is it? It was debated all the time, right? Church is essential. No, it's not. They're not. The church isn't necessary for, for this. And you have your own thoughts and opinions about it, probably. I'm, I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, would probably argue that, that of course the church is essential. Of course the body of Christ is essential to humanity. Without us, they don't hear the word of God, right? They don't hear the gospel. They don't. You know, like Paul said, how will they hear if nobody tells them, right? But the thing is, is that question wasn't one that was being asked by the church. You didn't know that. It wasn't the church asking the question. Because they weren't the ones making the decision. They're not the ones making the laws, right? It was the ones being asked by those who are arguably not the church, um, but not the church in a, as in an institution. But it was still asked about the church. You ask all of us here on staff, we're going to say, yeah, we're essential. Of course we're essential. Why would you even ask that question? Right, Katie? <laughs> but here's the thing. Our answer isn't the one that matters. Our answer isn't the one that makes the decision. It's the masses, really. That's the, the general consensus of our nation, of our government, is the one that decides it, right? Some of you here know who Michelle Hebert is. Who does not know who that is? Raise your hand. Just a few of you. She was the youth pastor here for a year before I was here. Um, really good friend of ours. She just moved away to be a doctor in California. They need them. <laughs> we need them too, though. <laughs> they really need them, though, especially godly ones. <laughs> and really good friend of ours. There's several times she'd come over to our house while she's here, and we'd have conversations, sometimes way too late, <laughs> as many of you here have attested to with us, too. 
Anna's laughing. <laughs> but, yeah, during this whole questioning of is the church essential, yes or no, did the church, should the church close their doors? And if they do, how soon should they open them? She was over having conversations with us. And we were discussing this. And she made a really good point. Her, her statement was, and I, I can't quote it exactly because it was like a year and a half ago. <laughs> but essentially she was saying, if we as a church are not considered essential to our society, why? Why is that? We should ask ourselves that. And it should be something that alarms us and should bother us, not in a sense of, how dare you say we're not essential? But it should upset us in the fact of, how did we let it get to that point? How in the world did we let it get to a place where our own society says, we don't need you anymore, in the midst of crisis? We don't need you anymore when the crap hits the fan. I can say crap because you guys are young adults. <laughs> but it should upset us, right? I mean, she made a good point that so much of the church, the evangelical church in particular, was like, how dare you close our doors? But it should make us take a step back and go, why has it happened? It got to this point because of us. It got to this point because of the church, in, in particular because of the lack of the church and community, a lack of the footprint of the church in society making a difference. Them saying, you're not that important to us. We can do it without you. And that should upset us. That should bother us. Why are we lumped with movie theaters, shopping malls, and gyms, and golf courses as to when they should close their doors and when they should open. <laughs> right? We should be lumped with the food bank, the hospitals, right? In, in light of the scripture, and when you read the book of Acts and you see what the church was doing, we should be in the same area as those, those groups, right? Those institutions but we weren't. Why is that? Interesting thing, Barna Group, I don't know if you know this statistics study group, they do a lot of questionnaires and surveys in regards to the church, what people think of the church within and outside of the church. They do a lot of really good studies. And they do a very professional job of them too. And they've come out with some books, if you guys have never read them, You Lost Me One, that one's a really good one. I recommend all of you guys read it because it's about our age group's perspective of the church. There's another one called Unchristian, which is also the perspective of our age group that's outside the church, viewpoint of the church, which is also an important thing to take note of, right? It's important what those people think of us. You know, take it with a grain of salt, of course, right? But their, their opinion is one that we should think about. And we should go, why do they feel that way? The Barna Group did a study about 10 years ago. It was in 2011, middle of the summer. So it's just over 10 years ago. What's interesting is I think the answers that people gave 10 years ago would not be the same today. As far as how they see the church, as far as whether they see the church as important. So the, this specific study said, do churches contribute to their community. And that's what Barna Group questioned. They did a study on it. The nationwide study shows that three-quarters of U.S. adults believe the presence of a church is very or somewhat positive. Very was 53%, and somewhat was 25%. So it was a little bit over 75. They see it as very much or somewhat positive for their community. In contrast, only one out of every 20 Americans believe that the influence of a church is negative, either very very negative, being 2%, or somewhat, as 3%, leaves about one out of six adults, 17%, who are indifferent towards the role of churches. 
Here's the interesting thing. Those with the most favorable views of churches are, uh, I wish Gary Swant was here. It's his age group. It's the seniors. It's the elders or those that are 66 and older. At the time, that would have been, now they would be 76 and older. Married adults, residents of the South. <laughs> Women. That one makes sense in my perspective. More women in church than men. You guys didn't know that. Look it up. Protestants, churchgoers, African Americans, and political conservatives. <laughs> that one shouldn't be surprising, right? <laughs> the people least likely to hold a firmly positive view of churches are, they, they use the term mosaics, but it's millennials. It's that same age group. 18 to 27, so now it would be 28 to 37. Makes me feel old. <laughs> Men. Never married adults. Those living in the West and Northeast, as in California up to Washington State. Not a surprise, right? And Northeast being New York City and everywhere around it. <laughs> Atheists and agnostics, obviously that shouldn't surprise us, right? <laughs> Unchurched adults, political liberals, and those not registered to vote. I thought that one was interesting. <laughs> However, with the exception of atheists and agnostics, a majority of every key demographic group studied believes that churches have a generally positive influence on their communities. That was 10 years ago, guys. I really, and I might email them this week, I would really love them to do this study post-COVID. And I'm not saying that because I necessarily think that the negativeness would go up, but I think just the passiveness, those that just don't really care they have a neutral sense of what they see the church as in the community. Eh, sure, I guess we could use them, but there's other things that do the same thing without Jesus. You know? I feel like the, the indifference towards the role of churches would, has probably gone up considerably. It was 17% before. I wouldn't be surprised if it was close to half now. I mean, think about it. Community was closed for a long time. Did the church being absent during that time really make a difference to the community? In some ways, I feel like it didn't. And that's coming from a pastor. Now, I haven't done a study on it, obviously, but I think... I think the fact that we were deemed as non-essential should mean something in light of this study. That we weren't seen as essential anymore. One interesting thing that Tim told me today, actually, was that the largest exodus of the church in the last year was millennials. It was young adults. They took an exit. They left the church during COVID and they said, yeah, I don't need to go back. I'm doing church plenty fine by myself or, and they never really missed me. They didn't really do anything for me. I mean, the list goes on and on of questions and answers that we would think that they probably have. But hey, what are we? We're a young adult ministry, right? And granted, millennials, the age is getting older and older as it goes, right? Anna is a Gen Z, right? You're one of the, I think she's one of, you're one of the older ones, right? In the generation. That's who's coming into the young adult world. And they've made an exodus from the church, so what do we got to do? We got to go find them. We got to go where they are, right? I love 
the sermon that Tim preached last time, which was two Sundays ago. We got to go fishing. <laughs> we got to go find our fishing hole. Where are they? And go get them. Because they're out there, right? They're in the community. We got to go look for them. I don't feel like this is surprising as far as the millennials being a large exodus from the church, as well as just the the understanding of the church is different now. And the church being considered not essential anymore by society. And I don't think it's something that should be surprising to us, but it should be alarming. It should be something that concerns us as a as a means of what am I doing? <laughs> and how can I do differently? What can I do to change that? Because I don't think 20 years ago, 30 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, based off of this study, the church would have been seen as not essential. 75% of people had a positive or somewhat positive view of church in the community, right? It should make us think, what do we need to do differently to change that perspective of how the church is seen by the world today? Now, obviously, there's negative views people are going to have of the church, right? Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you, right? It wasn't necessarily every single person is going to hate you, though, right? (laughs) There's going to be negative viewpoints. People are going to see the church as very negative or somewhat negative. But those that are indifferent about it, we should want to change their perspective, right? As well as those that see us as negative. They, they can change too, right? But James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. This is in the NIV. It's the first one I got up there. It says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Who here? Thoughts and prayers. Sending prayers your way. Yeah. Good vibes don't do a thing. When somebody is stuck in their home, starving and naked, (laughs) and maybe doesn't even have a home, right? What good does it do? Yeah. (laughs) The vibe. Whatever. That's why we're not called a vibe. (laughs) That's all I got to say. Let me see if I had anything else. A couple findings in regards to this study that was put together by the president of Barna Group. I'm trying to remember what his name is. Uh, David Kinneman says, Churches are not thought of as contributing to civic enhancement beyond poverty assistance. Most people do not connect the role of faith communities to civic affairs, particularly local efforts like assisting city government, serving public education, only a few in the church, in the schools, right? Do you feel like a minority? It's a problem. Serving public education, doing community cleanup, or engaging in foster care and adoption, and so on. How many of you have heard complaints about the foster care system, and how horrible it is, and how awful it is? How many of you have heard those complaints come from the church? How many of you have heard complaints come from people that aren't in foster care, and aren't helping? (laughs) You know what I mean? What can we do different? And there was a time where babies were left at the doorsteps of churches, not done anymore. Instead, they just get rid of it. <laughs> that should hurt to hear. 
There are opportunities for faith leaders to provide more intentional, tangible, and much-needed efforts to assist local government, particularly as many services have been diminished by the economy. This was 10 years ago. There were services that were stopped because of COVID. We can do something, right? Services at the YMCA were stopped, right, Mary? <laughs> there are other things in the community that were stopped, assistance stopped, that the church can step in and say, hey, we'll take care of you. We'll help. Go talk to Tim about this stuff. I'm telling you, if you guys invade his office, you'll make him, he'll hear it. <laughs> he'll hear you regardless, but there's person after person or a flood of people that come to him and be like, I'm sorry, yes? <laughs> yeah, he will. That's what he does. And I, I personally, I agree with it in a large, in a large way. Because he's like, I'm all about it. I'll help, I'll jump on board with you, but you shoulder it, you do it. Because what? That's what Jesus tells us, right? We see a problem and we're like, Jesus, why haven't you done something about it? And he goes, I don't know, why haven't you? Why haven't you done something? God, I don't want to be here, there's all these issues here. He's like, that's exactly why I placed you there. Change things, make a difference. Help your community. Another point that he found out was introducing people to a transformed life in Christ is rarely perceived to be an act of community service. Which, by the world standards, obviously that should surprise us, right? But here's the interesting thing. There seems to be a disconnect for most Americans between serving the community and helping individuals find their way to God through Christ. Ministry-related goals, such as teaching the Bible, introducing people to Christ, and bringing people to salvation, are infrequently viewed as a primary way to serve the community. Even among many churchgoers, contributing positively to the community is perceived to be the result of offering the right mixed public service program. Yet this seems to miss an important biblical pattern. You change communities by transforming lives. You take the gospel out of it. It's just a humanitarian project. Which really doesn't change lives. It just puts a band-aid over a festering wound. Of sin, really. I think the last year showed us areas of all our faith that are honestly dead. Like James says, faith without works is dead, right? And this last year exposed where our faith has been dead for the last how long and where it needs to change, where faith needs to be put into action and given life again. I preached a sermon a while ago to the youth that God wants to breathe life back into what's died back into the things that are dead in this world, in our lives, in our church, in our communities. He wants to do it through us, largely. <laughs> to show the world God transforms lives. And it's through him that makes a difference. To show the world that we as a church are not necessary, as last year did. And that should upset us not because of how they perceive us, but because of how our actions have made them perceive us. It should cause our faith to grow, and that happens when our actions grow too. When our doing makes a difference. When we, when we do doing. <laughs> when we do stuff as a community, in our community. It happens when we move closer to who God called us to be. You read the book of Acts. That community, nobody was lacking anything. They get somebody, they just be on their way to basically their equivalent of church. They're just heading to the temple. Some guy's sick, asking for, for help. Just 
somebody laying lame on the side of the street saying, can you help me? I need money. And they say, money I don't have. What I do have, I give you. Get up and walk. Blew the minds of everybody there. <laughs> Guy went into the church, which was the temple at the time, praising God. <laughs> People knew who he was because he'd been doing it for years. <laughs> They're like, I know this guy. There's people in the community I know that walk the streets because I've seen them for four years now doing it. And if they look totally in their right mind, cleaned up, changed, transformed life, here in the church, it would blow people's minds. They go, I've seen that guy walking around. I've seen him sleeping on the side of the street. I've seen him over at the town pump on Montana Street, causing a ruckus. <laughs> the faith of the believers in this nation has become so privatized. I think that's the main culprit with the problems of the church today in America. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. John 3, 16 is good. 1 John 3, 16 is too. It says, by this we know love. I really like this chapter, if you didn't know. It's where I got the name for the ministry. <laughs> by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is a really interesting article that I came across this week. And it comes from the Gospel Coalition. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. There's some of them that are pretty Calvinist, but I went to Tim and talked to him about it is that I've never seen any articles that are pretty Calvinistic from there. But some of the people are. But I think they have a lot they can teach us, a lot we can learn from. You can be saved a Calvinist. I just don't agree with you. <laughs> and we can debate that another time. <laughs> but this guy, Brett McCracken, I love that name. <laughs> McCracken. <laughs> What's cracking, McCracken? That's what I tell him <laughs> if I ever met the guy. But he had a really good article on, and this came out May 22nd, 2020, last year, right in the midst of churches closing and when are they going to open back up. And I think he's from California, which they were really dealing with some craziness. But here's some stuff that he had to say. A church is nice to have, but in no way necessary. When I saw my government, when I saw my governor's announcement, this is him saying this, that church gatherings won't resume until stage three of California's reopening, I was sad. Not because I dispute the high risks such gatherings pose, but because it underscored how low priority church going has become in contemporary Western culture. In California, churches are in the same reopening category as nail salons, gyms, movie theaters, which are nice to have luxuries we can presumably live without, Ray Prolong seated. Churches are lumped in with entertainment options. Good for people who like those sort of things, but by no means essential for human and societal flourishing, and certainly not worth the potential risk. It's telling that our society has decided we cannot live without essentials like liquor stores, marijuana dispensaries, and golf courses. Golf courses open sooner there, which I understand. Like, yeah, sure, there's a lot of space. They're not feeding the sick. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but we can live without physical church gatherings. That's what was perceived. He goes on to say, do we realize how revolutionary this is in the scheme of history? Mere decades ago, the role of church going in society was so central in day-to-day -day life, so fundamental to the well-being of both individuals and communities, that it would be unthinkable 
to relegate church gatherings to non-essential status. That we have come to see embodied church gatherings as non-essential speaks to a few dynamics that the COVID-19 pandemic didn't create, was exposed. It revealed it about the church and the way the church is seen already. These dynamics were not imposed by some external anti-Christian boogeyman. In many cases, they are dynamics perpetuated by Christians themselves. That's the sad part. Faith is privatized consumer commodity. He says, even though scripture makes clear the church, ecclesia, which means called out ones, gathering of people, what the word means in Greek for church, occupies a central place in God's eternal plan. See Ephesians 3, 7 through 12, if you want. Our anemic ecclesiology, study of the church, that's what ecclesiology is, often relegates church to a decidedly non-essential place. If church is just a nice-to-have, part of our self-styled spiritual journey, but only insofar as it enhances rather than undermines our expressive individualism. You don't know what I said there. <laughs> this guy's pretty scholarly. Basically, he's saying, if it's just something that's nice to have, and if it's our own personal idea of what Christianity is supposed to be, which it was God's idea, so we should fit his mold, right? insofar as it just makes our life maybe somewhat better, enhances, rather than explains who we are as an individual, the church, then of course it's something we can go without for prolonged periods. Church is not essential, we assume, because Christianity is just as easily practiced solo at home. Give me a Bible, some inspiring worship music, and maybe a few spiritual podcasts, and I'm good. That's all I need. Do we really need church to be spiritually healthy? I don't know what that was. <laughs> Do we need it to be spiritually healthy? In light of the church as a whole, as in the majority of people that call themselves Christians, no. I can just do it online. That's all I need. <laughs> I don't want to say doing online is wrong or anything like that, but if that is your norm, that's wrong. I'm just going to tell you now. You can't substitute community. There's something about coming together as a gathering of believers and worshiping God as one body that makes a difference. It changes things. shows you that you're not by yourself. It strengthens your faith. It strengthens your spirit man or woman, whatever you want to say. <laughs> I mean, it strengthens you, right? And if you have a problem doing it now, I'm sorry, but that's what heaven's going to be, is worshiping together as one body. Not people going in their new homes that they were made by Jesus to just worship him alone. <laughs> We're doing it together. You read the book of Revelation. It's throngs of people all gathered around the throne, praising God together as one. Sure, there might be some one-on-one -on -one time you get with Jesus. I would imagine so. It's eternity. There's eternity, <laughs> right? But if you think you will never do it with others in eternity, you're mistaken. <laughs> so why would you not do it here with people? It needs to happen, right? If you want this article yourself, I can send it to you. It's super good. I thought he had a really good, a lot of good things to say. A lot of shocking things, I should say. But when faith is relegated to a privatized, personal, consumeristic realm, everyone loses. Let me say that again. When faith is relegated to a privatized, personal, consumeristic realm, everyone loses. Personal spirituality becomes an incoherent mess 
when it has weak ties to a robust church community. Society at large suffers when local churches aren't fully functioning. I mean, it, it just does. And if it didn't affect things, then the church wasn't fully functioning before COVID. Really. Should, shouldn't we show we are essential rather than just saying we are? I love that when I read that one. As a mic drop right there. <laughs> shouldn't we show the world we are essential instead of just saying it? Because the way I feel is when the church was saying, we are essential, we are essential, stop closing our doors, they were saying, prove it. Show me. Show me you're essential to us because you haven't been for decades. And that should break our heart, right? Show me you matter to us and that I matter to you. Because the way I feel is, I don't. This pandemic and the non-essential status of the church within it should be a wake-up call for us. Does the world miss churches when they are taken away? Do they? Does the world miss churches when they're taken away? Do Christians themselves feel a gaping hole in their faith when the local church is missing? Recognizing that the ecclesia, church, called out ones, is God's idea, Matthew 16, 18, and 19, and the central part of his mission. How can the church reclaim a position in society that is perceived by everyone, believers and non-believers alike, as more essential than not? You guys should read this article. <laughs> Here's the last thing I want to share from it. And he says this, and I really feel the same way. I also hope this season shows us that privatized consumeristic spirituality is not enough. Not for individuals and not for society. We need more than just me and Jesus. Faith. You guys believe that? We need more than just me and Jesus' faith that has little bearing on the world and gives us little incentive to leave the house. We need faith that is rooted in strong serving, multiplying local church communities. The sort of faith that makes such a difference in its tangible presence that everyone notices and laments its absence. Oh. I share all this to get you guys to think. Think about your faith. Think about us as a ministry. Think about us as a church. How does our community perceive us? And does it alarm you? And granted, this is the church in America as a whole. We can have a different community. There's many people that have been prophesying revival is going to start here in Duke and spread throughout Montana and the rest of the nation. What is our role? What are we supposed to do? It's a huge question that takes a huge answer, right? I want to share a passage of scripture in Isaiah. And then after that, I want to share a song. Some of you have listened to it already. Caitlin shared it. But I listened to this song by Casting Crowns when I, once in the last probably 500 times I've been in the car, <laughs> turned on the radio for once. <laughs> Heard it on K-Love. But guys, I tell you, Casting Crowns, they're incredible. They really are. And I know they get overplayed and all that stuff. But I've seen them in concert a few times. It's amazing presence of God is there. They're incredibly gifted and anointed. The grace on them. If you guys have been given an opportunity in the future to see Casting Crowns, take it. And take it as a worship session. That's what it is. It's amazing. So this passage in Isaiah, I want you guys to just close your eyes and listen. I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation. And I challenge you guys to read this in your own time. But this is... um. 
the passage that God was really speaking to me in this last week, I mean, he's just like blown my mind every time I read it. And he was speaking to the nation of Israel and them losing their, their focus and their true sense of worship, worship to God. And it's, it's really powerful. So let me read it. Isaiah 58. It's the whole chapter, starting verse 1. It says, New Living Translation, Shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud. Don't be timid. Tell my people Israel of their sins. Yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn all about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves, and you don't even notice. I will tell you why, I respond. It's because you are fasting to please yourself. Even while you fast, which, let me tell you, fast to please yourself. Who does that? <laughs> even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. Is that what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No, this is the kind of fasting I want. Pay attention. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry, even while you're fasting. And give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. And do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn, and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward. And the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then when you call, the Lord will answer. Yes, I am here. He will quickly reply. Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness. And the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. Some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities. Then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Honor the Sabbath in everything you do on that day. And don't follow your own desires or talk idly. Then the Lord will be your delight. I will give you great honor and satisfy you with the inheritance I promised to your ancestor Jacob. I, the Lord, have spoken. In regards to fasting and the Sabbath, I'm going to tell you now, I have been fasting and Sabbathing wrong. <laughs> I just have been. In particular, I like the last two verses especially. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests on that day. But enjoy the Sabbath. How many of us have been doing that? Pursuing your own interests on that day. <laughs> Whatever it might be to you. And speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Honor the Sabbath and everything you do on that day. And don't follow your own desires or talk idly. Then the Lord will be your delight. How many of you want that? <laughs> He'll give you great honor. <laughs> you guys imagine being honored by God. <laughs> that blows my mind. <laughs> being honored by God himself. 
he'll satisfy you with the inheritance I promised to your ancestor Jacob. If you want to know what that is, get a study Bible or go look at it in the Old Testament. <laughs> There's a lot of blessing he gave. And that blessing is ours. When we devote ourselves to him and what he commands, right? I think it be, applies beyond fasting. Fasting is the, it's like, you're a real Christian if you fast, right? <laughs> you're one of those real ones. <laughs> Daniel shows me up every week. <laughs> it's so hard to fast with kids. <laughs> to make their food. But I read this and I go, I'm supposed to be. I read this and I go, he says, what kind of fasting makes me impressed? It's you loving people. It's you impacting your community. And it should be more than just on fasting days that we do that, right? We should be doing that regardless. The day we fast shouldn't be out on the street covered with ashes. Oh, Lord, I'm so hard on myself. Don't you notice me? No, he's not impressed by it. He just noticed a fool. <laughs> but this, the fasting God desires, that really just the life he wants for us to live is to love mercy and walk humbly before our God. It's in the Old Testament. Go look it up. Love justice and mercy and walk humbly before our God. He says in James that true lasting religion is caring for widows and orphans or the oppressed. That's what they were seen as in the Old Testament. And keeping yourself unstained from the world. And one way we do that is changing the world. Because the world doesn't change itself, right? We're, we're the difference. You can get that song ready. Don't play it quite yet, Josh. You can get it ready on the screen, though. I think you'll have to drag the, the time back. I played it by accident earlier. <laughs> the next week, the plan that I have for us, we did this a while ago, before COVID. We're going to go back to Starbucks. We're going to do a Bible study there. 7 o'clock, we're going to start with Philippians chapter 1. And I want us to go there. Be in the community. Be with people. Invite people. If there's people that you're like, I know they're not going to come to church, but maybe they'll come to Starbucks. You can even just tell them, hey, just, just come listen and drink coffee with us. <laughs> Hear what the Bible says. See if it actually has some good stuff to say. Because it does, right? We're going to read chapter 1 of Philippians in a week from today. And if you guys remember, in two weeks, we're going to go up to Great Falls. We're going to be the church. We're going to make a difference in a church that needs help. And I've been in communication with Pastor Sam up there. Some of you might not know, but we went there, gosh, what was it now? Three, four weeks ago? And Pastor Sam, him and his wife had just got there from South Carolina. And They'd been there for like a week and a half. Two people in the congregation when they got there. Two people. And they said, I'm not giving up on you. <laughs> and they're not even from there. What is that? That's the church. That's what it is. That's what God envisioned us to be, right? And they, they're in need of some serious help. They don't have a church sign. Like Their sign was like maybe twice as big as this poster board just stuck in the ground with a pencil that said Sundays at 10 a.m. That's wrong. <laughs> Breaks my heart when I see that. I'm like, you need a real sign. <laughs> but he got the materials. Somebody there in the church, because they've got people in the church now. Praise God, right? And they, they average probably about a dozen, dozen and a half people. Bilingual at that. <laughs> Isn't that, we're not even bilingual. <laughs> Got too much Irish people. <laughs> I don't know if we could be bilingual even if we wanted to. <laughs> we might be able to. We'll see. 
but they, they need some help. They need some help with getting things underway. They need help getting this sign put up. And they've got a guy that's going to be helping paint the church, so I don't think we have to do that. Praise God. <laughs> but we can do things. There, there's other stuff there. He's like, we got some shrubs that need to get gone. <laughs> They're in rough shape. So I just want us to go up there and say, hey, what do you need? We're here. What do you want us to do? And here's the other kicker. In light of this passage, I want us to fast during it. Oh. At least for part of it. But when I read this, I'm like, what do you mean I'm supposed to still do stuff when I fast? I'm not just supposed to sit in a closet and pray. Right? I mean, like, my perspective of fasting has been my day just looks normal, looks the same, as always, which I'll tell you is wrong in itself, because I should be doing more community stuff, right? And then just praying when I have time, when I got more time, just making more time for prayer, which I'm not going to say is wrong, right? It's not. But in light of this, we're supposed to still be making a difference when we fast. Not telling the world, hey, I'm fasting. Look at me and how miserable I am. I'm skipping all my meals and going to my bedroom to pray. <laughs> no, Jesus said when you fast, have yourself cleaned up. The world doesn't need to know you're fasting. <laughs> they don't, because I do. And that's who you're doing it for anyway. So leading up to it, read this in your own time. Isaiah 40. Or 58. And then think whether we should do this or not. <laughs> I'm going to talk to him, though, because they were wanting to, like, bless us with a meal and do a nice home-cooked meal and everything in the church for us, which I'm not opposed to. What's that? On 5 p.m. Friday to 5 on Saturday. So maybe we could just say, hey, do dinner for us Saturday. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking we can, <laughs> our breakfast, our breakfast. That's <laughs> why it's called that, because you fast all night. You didn't know that. So I want us to do communion together and then do dinner together. That's kind of the plan. <laughs> you sad, because you'll be a Saturday and you'll be delivering people's mail. <laughs> we'll miss you, Luke. Don't make yourself fall over during work, though. Here's the big key thing, and Daniel emphasizes it, and I know it to be true through experience. Drink water. Lots of it. We're at higher elevation, people. Okay, And you might be like, nah, I've been here my whole life. Your body is greatly affected by the elevation and needs more water than usual because you live here. More water than most people. So you actually need to drink more water than the average person who's fasting in the rest of the country because of your high elevation. It's really weird, but I know it's true because I've had to guzzle and guzzle water, and when I stop, I'm like, what's wrong with me? And you stop drinking water today for only an hour. <laughs> so drink lots of water if you're fine with you.